Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. people are ready to cheer us off after this one because every 10 episodes of a podcast should be a milestone. Welcome to episode 60 of Americans Watching the Footy. I'm Benjamin Castle. I'm Ethan Castle. We're here as usual in South San Francisco, California, and we're ready to preview week one of the finals. We hope you enjoyed our past couple episodes where we did a post-mortem analysis of each of the 10 teams that are not playing on into September. We'll also be doing post-mortems after each round of finals for the teams that get eliminated. But that's not the focus right now, because we're looking in the more immediate sense at the four games over the next three days. Thursday Night Footy is back for the first time since Geelong beating Melbourne. But let's take a look back at notable plays from the home and away season first, because we now have the round 23 winners for Mark and Goal of the Week, as well as the finalists for each of those. The winners, of course, will be announced on Brownlow night. The round 23 mark winner is Nick Murray of the Crows going over Dan Houston. Late in Adelaide Showdown, really one of the only things that went right for the Crows in the second half of that match. Your three finalists for mark of the year, weirdly, only one of them actually won that round's vote. You've got Charlie Spargo over Darcy Tucker for Melbourne in a round 11 loss to Fremantle or Narm losing to Fremantle, as they were called, for those two couple of rounds. Their first loss of the season. I remember the jokes about Melbourne still being undefeated. And then, of course, they lost the next two weeks as well. In round 16, Mitch Georgiatis over Brennan Cox in Port Adelaide's loss to Fremantle. He actually didn't win Mark of the Week for round 16. That actually went to Hayden Young, who I thought was the best one of that round and maybe the best of the year. Young actually held onto the ball all the way to the ground, but Georgiatis got greater height. And in round 19, you had Toby Green over Lewis Young. Green did not win the vote for that round, just like Georgiatis lost the vote to an opponent from the victorious team. Same deal here, because it was Adam Saad, Woof. who won round 19's Mark of the Week. So all three actually came from losing efforts, but all three looked pretty good. I could be Convinced to take any of these, I think I'm leaning Spargo with Georgiatis as a close second. I really value the ability to cleanly bring down the market. So I actually like Toby's more than you do. Out of the three, I'm probably leaning Spargo, though. The middle of the season was a stretch where Spargo played some of his best footy, even though the rest of the team may not have been as great around him. He was a really important factor in last year's grand final, and I wouldn't be shocked if he breaks through again this September. I didn't agree with the round 23 goal of the week winner, but Bo McCreary had 
an awesome kick, kind of parallel with the right side boundary after taking a Scott Pendlebury handball. That cut the lead to five with 4.59 left. And as you may recall, it earned a nice Brian Taylor wowie. But Tyson Stengel should have won that. I'm in full agreement there. Stengel sold candy in the left pocket, Deke Jermaine Jones, and got off the kick as Jackson Nelson closed in on him. I have no complaints about the three finalists for this year. And I guess this evens out all the mark nominees coming from losing efforts because all the goal nominees came in victories for the respective teams. In round four, Shea Bolton stole Bailey Smith's handball, ran to the left pocket, and kicked on the left. It was an impressive all-round play that he managed to intercept it and finish it himself in a tight space. In round 18, this is almost a meme selection, but it was still really impressive. Sam Draper won a center bounce against the Suns. He executed a give-and-go with Mac Wolfie. He shook off Charlie Ballard and scored. I think he kicked on the outside of his boot as well, which made it even stranger. And then we also have Essendon to thank for the round 19 goal of the week winner and the last nominee because, nice defense, folks, Josh Dacos, who won goal of the year in 2020, bounced the ball on the left boundary around Sam Durham and Nick Hine. He ran along and then kicked with the right. Another really long sequence ending in the goal. And I have a hard time deciding between any of these. Ethan, who gets the nod for you? I'm going to go Dacos with Bolton a close second. I'm not going to be mad whoever wins it, even if it's Draper, even though Draper didn't even have the best goal of his round, Jeremy Cameron did, and I will take that to the grave. Who's your winner? I would pick Josh Dacos to win his second car in three years as well. There were a bunch of honorable mentions that didn't even make it in here. Like I said, Jeremy Cameron in round 18, Tyson Stengel this past round, Toby Dan Curvis all the way back in round two, kicking one out of midair. I think he also had one in round nine that we thought should have won, was actually nominated, but didn't get selected. Need to give like special commendation to him for for things at the end of the year. Maybe if we do our own awards, we'll do like season achievement awards and he'll get one of them. It's kind of just like we don't have a specific award to give you, but you deserve an award and not a participation trophy, like an actual award. We're going to get into our four game previews. But first, we're going to do something a little different here. It's an idea that I had. Basically, we're just going to go through each team, and each of us are going to give a reason why they will win the flag. Each of us will give a reason why they won't win the flag. So this is going to be very much rapid fire, and we're just going to kind of go back and forth. So we're just going to go bottom to top in order of seating. So Benjamin, why are the Bulldogs going to win the flag? They've been known to make runs like these before. They've managed to gather themselves together and have that top-end talent shine through when it matters. But at the same time, being so reliant on talent rather than coaching is why I've been so skeptical of them throughout this year. And I know you've had that same concern as well. We consistently talk about Luke Beveridge probably not being a great coach in terms of, to borrow the American football term, the X's and O's, not referencing the L. King song even though her dad is from the Bay Area. So I guess it's kind of the same thing as to why they will and won't. It's just both sides of that coin. I'm going to say the Bulldogs are going to win the flag because Tim English is going to go off like Max Gaughan did last year, where it felt like there were two of them on the field at a time. It's rare that they've had the combination of English, Trelore, Bailey Smith, Marcus Bonapelli, all really clicking at once. And at some point, the talent is just so good that it's going to come together. 
The reason they're not going to do it is Ryan Gardner is going to be the bad version of Indian food, and Luke Beveridge doesn't make good in-game adjustments. Ryan Tika Masala Gardner at it again. It feels weird asking why Richmond are going to win the flag because we're used to it at this point. But Ethan, why are the Tigers going to do it for the fourth time in six years? Dustin Martin's healthy. They're super versatile. They've got this interesting mix of young talent and experienced guys who can lead the way so that, you know, usually the problem with a young team is they're inexperienced. The problem with an old team is they don't have the athletic ability. They've kind of got the best of both worlds. And they've got, again, guys that they can slide between different positions if someone gets hurt. It also means they can play a lot of different matchups, just kind of play the hot hand and have their best 22 in the lineup. And Damian Hardwick's a hell of a coach. And why are they not going to get it done despite that? They can't win close games. And you're not just going to blow teams out four times in a row to win a flag. You're going to have to win some tight games and their lack of detail and some of the little things that screwed them up during that stretch with the losses to the Suns and North and the tie with Fremantle, those things are going to pop up again. My concern comes from one player that they're missing. As much as Richmond are good at moving around pieces and being able to plug gaps, I'm not sure that come finals time, Dylan Grimes is someone that you can afford not having in there for your first three weeks. He seems to be a more sound and level-headed leader than Toby Nankervis as well. I'm kind of surprised that he isn't the sole captain. And as much as they have good defensive pieces elsewhere, not having Grimes there to potentially have that Stephen May-like impact at fullback, I think is going to do them in in the end. Why will the Tigers win the flag? The Tigers are going to get it done because it's going to because their success is going to come from the younger part of the list. There's going to be so much attention. There's going to be so much attention toward Dustin Martin, Tom Lynch, that even with all the skill they have, players like Uncle Morris Rioli Jr., reminder, he is Daniel's uncle, and Noah Cumberland, despite kicking multiple goals in six of seven games since actually making his on-field debut, could, in comparison, slip through the cracks. They have almost an opposite situation in terms of depth to the Bulldogs. All right. Moving up quickly, why are the Brisbane Lions going to win the flag? The Brisbane Lions can win the flag because I can see two players who can single-handedly get them over the line at the end. And even though they're going to be missing one of them for their first game, Zach Bailey is still there. And peak Zach Bailey equals peak Brisbane Lions. And he's due to hit another peak. Why won't the Lions win the flag? Because this is just going to be another straight set situation. Yes, they're only playing one actual final. But round 23 against Melbourne was their qualifying final. We're used to this. They have this big start to the season, and they can't corral themselves in the end. And kind of contradicting my point earlier, lacking Rayner with his late-game goal-scoring ability could really do them in in their elimination final when Richmond have been able to go on good fourth-quarter runs in the last few rounds. So why do you think the Lions are going to win it or not? Chris Fagan's a damn good coach and can make the in-game adjustments needed. Lockie Neal is the sort of midfielder who can dominate all the way to a Norm Smith medal. Even without Marcus Adams, they have enough defensively to be able to keep up. They've got a loaded forward line. They've got so many scoring weapons. And at some point, the talent might just be enough to get them over to hump. And yet they won't because they can't handle any adversity. The moment they give up three goals in a row, they completely capsize. Dane Zorko doesn't have the leadership qualities needed to be able to keep a team level-headed. And 
They just, something's missing. You see this with teams in a lot of different sports. We've seen it with a hockey team that we care about. We've seen it with teams that we care less about in other sports as well. And the Lions are just one of those teams that just aren't going to get over the hump with this core. The hockey team, for a refresher for those of you who may not know, is the San Jose Sharks. But their issue was different in that they held on to their older core for too long, in my opinion. I was referring more to kind of what they were doing throughout the 2010s rather than you know the last couple of years and the descent from relevance. But even in 2016, I felt like they were too old. Also, having a complete fucking idiot for a coach didn't help. Should have fired him after the one season. Look at his track record. Have fun, Dallas Stars. Well, um, the team that placed fifth are called Flag Mantle now for a reason. What is that reason, even? They're an elite defensive team. They can bring that every week. Yes, they had a bit of a lull, but it's a style that can play against any opponent. It's a style that can play on any ground, whether they're at home, whether they're at the G, whether they have to go to Sydney, wherever. Home away, doesn't matter. They have the athleticism and endurance to keep it up for an entire game, and they will wear you down. Also, Justin Longmere is a good coach. And why is Flag Mantle a mirage? They hit their peak way too early in the season. They don't really have... Um, unless you have both Sam Switkowski and Rory Lobb fully healthy, they don't really have the forward group that can dominate where they're going to be able to score off a of set shots. They're going to have to score off of forcing turnovers. And at this point, a lot of the league has figured them out. Better teams have figured them out. And they're just not going to be able to keep up that sort of defensive clinic, not so much because of their own style, but because of the quality of competition. They're still on the right track to winning a flag in the next few years, but they're a couple pieces away. Benjamin, why will Fremantle not win the flag? I've got a couple concerns about them. Even with the time off, I'm skeptical about Rory Lobb's health. If his shoulder isn't right, then they're going to have a tougher time covering that second ruck option. Lloyd Meek was quiet in round 23, and Griffin Logue has so much more value elsewhere. Sean Darcy, more than anything, is a big body, and other Ruckman can out-finesse him if necessary. Also, I think teams are going to make the right tagging decisions. Andrew Brayshaw may actually not be the right one to tag, and maybe Caleb Sarong. However, if there was any out-of-state team that I trust when it comes to getting results in Victoria... It's Fremantle because they picked up five wins there this season. And I also share your positive opinion of Justin Longmere. He's one of the best coaches at making halftime adjustments and being able to flip results through those. We saw those a couple times earlier in the season in particular. We are halfway done with this little mini segment that I decided to throw together. By the way, we're doing this without notes. We're doing this pretty much completely off the cuff. Cracks knuckles. He actually cracked his knuckles and it sounded really painful. I don't know how people find that enjoyable, but I think a lot of people would wonder how anyone finds Collingwood enjoyable. So, Benjamin, why will Collingwood win the flag? They're enjoyable in the sense that they play a really high energy brand of footy and and they won a record 11 games decided by two goals or less. The final seven games of their win streak that occurred post by were all within that margin. They know how to grind out games in the end. They will punish your simplest mistake when you're tired. And it's weird to think of them as inevitable, but I'm kind of getting that vibe from them. Why won't they win the flag, though? I feel like I'm tempting fate when I'm saying they won't keep getting away with it the whole way through. At some point, their luck has got to run out. Something's got to even out. The major winning streak is over. Of course, they lost in Sydney in round 22, but you can't go on winning by such small margins forever. 
even with good coaching helping with that along the way. I'm really impressed with what Craig McRae has managed in his first year. Why do you not think Collingwood are going to manage it, Ethan? Well, the reason I think they can win it and the reason I think they can't win it are actually quite similar. When I look at Collingwood, yeah, they've got some decent marking ability, but for the most part, this is a team that their biggest strength is that they don't suck at anything. But simultaneously, they aren't super great at anything other than grinding out the close games. They do little things right, but I don't think they can do enough big things right to take down superior, more talented teams. We saw that in round 22 against Sydney, and that sort of slip up seems like it'll happen at some point where even if they do every little thing right and are so good at not sucking, that eventually they'll just run into a brick wall in the form of just a better team. But on the other hand, that they don't suck at anything, that might be enough. That's at least half the battle, might be more than half. And they're playing with house money. There's no pressure on them. They come into this final against Geelong. All the pressure is on the Cats. Collingwood could lose this week and the following week by triple digits, and the season would still be an enormous success for them. They have nothing to lose. They have nothing to worry about. They just get to go out there and play. Also, Mason Cox. We've spent a whole lot of our airtime talking positively about the Sydney Swans. So which positive are you going to zone in on as to why they're going to win their second flag under John Longmire? They're more physical than past Swans teams, and a lot of that has to do with Sam Reed's evolution. We already knew they have a lot of speed, good ball handlers, good tackling, but you combine what they've developed with Reed this year and the intercept ability that the McCartan brothers give, and that's enough to take them over the edge. Also, Longmire's halftime adjustments are excellent, and while they obviously play really well at the SCG, they've done pretty well for themselves in Melbourne too. What's going to stand in their way though? They have a lack of finals experience with this current group. And really, other than that, I don't have that much. I guess the only other thing I can come up with, I think they're the least flawed team out of the eight. But there is one fault that I can identify. If teams are able to avoid the McCartans and not let them rack up intercepts, the Swans can actually be a pretty easy team to score on. I think teams will be well prepared for that, do everything they can to avoid the McCartans, and be able to do enough offensively to make up for Sydney's midfield play. Benjamin, why are the Swans going to win the flag? The Swans do play incredibly cleanly, and that's been highlighted in their work off stoppages the past couple weeks. And it's come from players that may not necessarily be pinpointed by a lot of people as being so important in that respect. James Robottom and Will Hayward have done an incredible job in stoppage clearances the past month or so during this seven-game win streak. You combine that with the combination of energy and clean play from Chad Warner and also Errol Golden's ability to be level-headed in any situation. And as young as the Swans are, I can really see them getting the job done. Why will they not win the flag? Because there is one potential positional flaw for them, and it's become even more highlighted this past week, and that's that they're thin in the ruck department. Tom Hickey has done well at times this year. I've actually liked some of his handballing on the ground, being able to scramble out possessions the past couple weeks. And Sam Reed has done an admirable job as a second ruck a lot of the year, but that's not his natural position. Callum Sinclair could get a shot before he retires. He announced that he's going to be retiring after this season, as did Colin O'Reardon because of a hip injury. But why am I mentioning Sinclair in the first place? Because Peter Laddams has been suspended for being the dirty player he is. 
and just completely bowling over Tajwa Woden in the VFL a full second or so after Woden disposed of the ball along the boundary. You wonder why Port got rid of him. Frankly, three games is letting him get off pretty easy. I do want to add a couple more Swans things real quick. James Robottom is the type of guy to make those little plays that's going to win you close games. Stoppage clearances need to be highlighted more in a lot of analysis. I think we see the center clearances just because the play off them can flow more freely, but you have way more stoppages than center bounces. And it's those small contest wins that Robottom has been able to get that can decide close games. It's not just clearances, though. He does so much more than that. I do have one other piece of criticism for the Swans. They played a really soft schedule to finish the year. Four of the last five games are against opponents whose seasons are now over. Can they ramp it back up quickly enough to face teams that have been playing in that mode for a while? Is the bye week enough to get them back onto the onto level footing there? All right. Why will Melbourne repeat? It almost feels like a stupid question, doesn't it? Yeah. They showed that they showed that they're still able to grind out the close games and also as evident with the game against Brisbane, they're able to open up a game based on just one or two small flaws that a team has. Obviously, Brisbane didn't play their best, but one of the things that made Melbourne so dangerous last year in the finals was their ability to punish. Combine that with increased center with increased center clearance success as of late, and you see why they were able to have some of that success last year and how it may repeat this year. Also, Jake Bowie played the last round, and if he stays in, you know his track record late in the year. Why won't they repeat? Because they've already peaked. They peaked in the first part of the season. They've played 500 footy since then, and there's been some inconsistency in terms of in terms of yield from the forwards, other than Bailey Fritch having kicked a goal in every game. Is Max Gone going to be able to get himself together and kick more accurately? despite what he's done the past couple months, I'm not optimistic. I said it a couple months back now. I can't believe it's been a couple months already. More than that, in fact. The entrecote incident between Stephen May and Jake Melksham is either going to be something that gets completely glossed over, or if Melbourne failed to win this year, it's going to be something that gets mentioned in a Jagger Skillbeck video. Why do you think Melbourne are getting it done, Ethan? This is a really complete roster They've had good health, which is really hard to do when you're coming off of the longest possible season. They're deeper than you think with guys like Charlie Spargo stepping up, Jaden Hunt the past few rounds. Michael Hibbard has done a great job on Charlie Cameron, and if he keeps playing in that form, this is a pretty impenetrable defensive group. Also, Max Gon is fully capable of returning to the form he showed at this time last year when it felt like there were at least two of them on the ground at once. We'll also mention... Jake Belksham might be playing his best footy yet. Maybe in that case, the incident helps him. But why are the Ds not going to repeat? They peak too early. They've got a lot of really good players who have been great against lesser competition. But I don't know if Christian Petraka can throw his weight around to the point where he's still so dominant against a team like the Swans. Now, Christian Petraka is still, on his worst day, better than a lot of players are on their best day. But they need him to be in top, top form. They need Max Gon to be in that form where it feels like there's at least two of them on the ground at once. They need Clayton Oliver to put up that sort of performance as well. And simply put, other teams can make those guys look just good instead of otherworldly. And now it is my sworn duty to ask the Cats fan in the room with 
the cat sleeping right next to him. Hello, Brian Harambe. Ethan, why are the cats going to fall short yet again in their seventh straight finals appearance, their 10th of 11 since winning the flag in Chris Scott's first year? They can't seem to win that first final. They haven't been able to do that since 2016. And it would put them in an immediate hole. It would take away all the advantages they had built up through finishing first in a dominant home and away season. It opens up the possibility of having to play at the SCG, which really doesn't fit their style. Sure didn't in round two, although they don't have the prospect of getting the ground invaded again in all likelihood. And Zach Tui won't have to give back a fan's wallet. It's not my wallet. And the midfielders just can't quite stack up against top, top competition. It's still a good midfield group but it's not enough to dominate in a game against a team like Collingwood, a team like Frio, a team, really any of these eight teams. That's where this team's weakness is, is that the midfield is just decent. Thing is, Cats are on a 13-game streak going in, and they seem like they've hit their stride. So what aspect of their game is going to take them over the edge and finally have them get the job done again? Mark Blitzovs can match up with anyone, anywhere, and that means no matter who you put him on, you have the superior athlete in the matchup with the opposing team's best player. He's been otherworldly this year. The nice record means they've been able to rest guys, so age shouldn't catch up with them as much. They should be ready to go and just roll through this thing. If they win this first final, they should be well on their way. This is a legitimately excellent team, and the forward group is out of this world. Now that you have Tyson Stengel in that mix as well. And defensively, look what happens when you have a healthy Tom Stewart you have Sam DeConing's evolution. That means you have so much more room you can work with Jack Henry, whether that means keeping him back defensively or moving him forward. This is one of the most talented teams, if not the most talented. And while there are other very talented teams, they haven't been able to rest their guys like the Cats have. Wait, sorry, Brian, what'd you say? Oh, yes, Mark Blitzoff did used to be a steeplechaser. Benjamin, why are Geelong not going to win the flag? Like with Collingwood... The ride has got to end somewhere, and I don't expect them to be able to put together three or four straight games, and I don't expect them to be able to put together three straight games where the back line is able to entirely hold itself up. There's going to be one there's going to be one forward or another that's able to neutralize one of the main defenders and is going to open up the ground for the others. I could see a more physical, taller player like Ash Johnson helping neutralize. Tom Stewart or Sam DeConing, and with Collingwood having all the forward targets they do, that could open up things for the smalls even more. And then I share your skepticism about the midfield. As much as we love Grind Myers, as much as as much as Mitch Duncan has played a lot of good games this year, they're one of the weaker midfields that has made the eight. Why will they win the flag? Because this is where all the experience that's been building up over the years that has been seeing these results not get it done. This is where it's going to pay off. Tom Hawkins has a more than worthy partner in crime in Jeremy Cameron. And Hawkins is as good at getting assist as he is getting that signature right to left action and actually scoring. There's a reason he's an Australian captain, even at age 34. And I feel like there's going to be one player that we haven't thought much of, as much of in these last few games that is going to surprise us. If Mark O'Connor gets in and does a really good tagging job, that could potentially be the difference. And there are going to be plenty of one-on-one matchups that could cause Chris Scott to swing that change, whether it's known about the day before the game or 10 minutes prior to the bounce. I think that was a lot of fun. That was a cool way to kind of 
segue from the home and away season into finals, you know, getting the mark and goal of the year nominees out there and then moving on to discuss kind of set us up for finals, why each team is going to win the whole thing or why they won't. Now we're going to take our quick ad break. And when we come back, we will preview the four finals matchups this round, the elimination finals and qualifying finals. So stick around. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Americans Hoodie, where we will react in real time to all of the fun. And it'll be easy to stay focused and keep track of things because we don't have games running concurrently with each other. I'm on Twitter at Castle Media. I am on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. And Brian Harambe, the footy cat, is not on Twitter, although you've talked about starting a Twitter for him where you just tweet out whatever he manages to type on your keyboard. But until that happens, you can find Brian when he's not right here in this room and acting as our third host on Instagram at catnamedgrian. Along with all the finals having their own time slots, nothing running against another final. The other thing I'm excited for about the scheduling, other than the fact that it's finals time, is that all four games will be on US TV live. The first three will all be on Fox Sports 1 and the last on Fox Sports 2. One thing that's really compelling to me about this set of matchups is that you look at how close the regular season meetings were for pretty much all of them. None decided by more than 17 points, although in fairness, Fremantle was more than 17 points ahead of the Bulldogs for a lot of that game was just final margin being what it was. It all starts with the second elimination final between the Brisbane Lions and Richmond at the GABA. That'll be Thursday night slot. 7.20 p.m. local time in the Pacific states of Australia. So that'll be 5.20 a.m. Eastern, 2.20 a.m. Pacific in the United States. Again, this will be on Fox Sports 1. The Lions finished in 6th at 15-7, and seven, while the Tigers finished 7th at 13-8-1. These teams, like in the other matchups that we'll be breaking down, met just once during the home and away season, so no three-peats yet across any of the matchups going on this week. But there's room for that later, of course. They played round 20 at the MCG, a game where the Tigers overcame a 42-point deficit to win 104-97, to the sort of game that makes you question if the MCG curse for the Lions is actually real rather than just pure coincidence. Well, they won't have to worry about the MCG curse for this one because they're hosting it, However, we know what Richmond are capable of at this round. Look at what they managed to accomplish in 2020, winning a whole bunch of games there, including, of course, the grand final. And it's and it's also not helping the Lions cause that, that they will still be without Marcus Adams. As you mentioned earlier, Ethan, his concussion symptoms resulting from a collision near the end of their round 21 game against Carlton have ruled him, have ruled him out for the rest of the season. Additionally, Noah Answorth and Cam Rayner are both suspended for this game for incidents in the in the first half of their round 23 blow-up against Melbourne. Rayner for a dangerous tackle on Ben Brown in the first, and Answorth for striking Alex Neal Bullen in the second. With those changes necessitated, Darcy Wilmot is going to make his debut in a final. Thanks to Sir Swamp Thing for this tidbit, Wilmot will be the first player to debut in a final played outside Victoria. I appreciate that for the sake of record keeping, the AFL counts all games the same. That's not something you have in North American sports. For example, 
For example, going back to hockey, Patrick Marlowe, the San Jose Sharks, has the most regular season games played, but the great Gordy Howe blew him out of the water counting playoff games. But that's not how those statistics are viewed. The most ridiculous thing is that single game stats are often kind of disregarded. You know, if you want to disregard things like going for the season lead for home runs or touchdowns or what have you, okay, everyone should have the same amount of games for that. I get that. But like a single game performance should not be invalidated in this context because it happened against a really good team on a really big stage. Like Colin Kaepernick with some great numbers in a playoff game against the Green Bay Packers in, I believe it was the, would have been like January of 2013. I believe it's the most rushing yards for a quarterback ever in a game. And it's not included because it happened in the playoffs, which just as for, as for more relevant subject matter though, Darcy Wilmot, I don't get why he didn't get an appearance during the home and away season. I think building up depth is an important part of winning a flag and you can't build up depth if you never have. That's why I'm more surprised. That's why I'm particularly surprised to see him in this context rather than see Devin Robertson make another appearance with what he offered in limited time in the AFL this year. At least he actually played earlier on. Speaking of surprising lineup decisions, I think this is a fun way to start finals because a lot of things are going to go against our expectations if this is any indication. Dustin Martin is indeed back, but rather than pushing out a young guy like Tyler Zonsi or Ben Miller, Shane Edwards omitted. Edwards was rested once near the end of the home and away season as well. Again, this is his final campaign. I think it's hard to take Miller out because he is going to be your second ruck option, at least in the back two thirds. At this point, it's clearly Miller over Yvonne Soldo, who is stiff himself to miss out. With the depth that Richmond have with their top 30 or so players, there are going to be tough decisions all over the place, and this happens to be one of them. Thinking back to that round 20 game, there are so many self-inflicted wounds from Brisbane, a lot of poor passing that led to opportunities for Richmond, and the game was sealed when Darcy Gardner was too quick to play on when Noah Cumberland was right there. Had he waited until Stan was called, or had he just waited even for half a second, he could have gotten 50. So the Lions are going to need to take some of the pace out of this game, I think, in order for them to stand a reasonable chance because Richmond play best when they're playing fast. They're one of the better teams at scrambling possessions together, together possessions. They have been built on getting forward half intercepts in this flag era. So if Brisbane can stay composed ahead of the ball, I think it's going to do them so good in this one. We have a rare road favorite in finals. Tigers favored by five and a half. And frankly, I'd put a little bit more on them. I would as well with what we know about the Lions and their finals track record and what Cam Rayner has meant to them. Now that he's out, his absence is definitely going to be felt. Again, I really like Zach Bailey. He did a lot of great things early in the year, but I don't think he and Wilman combined can make up for Rayner's absence. Just as we have the second elimination final before the first, we have the second qualifying final before the first. That's your Friday night footy for this week. Melbourne hosting Sydney at the G. This one will get underway in your typical Friday night slot. So if you're on the West Coast of the United States, 2.50 a.m., 5.50 a.m. if you're on the East Coast, and if you're along Australia's Eastern Seaboard, 7.50 p.m., this is another game that will be on Fox Sports 1. 
believe then that this is the third straight game Melbourne will be playing that airs on Fox Sports 1. Rare for them ahead of finals to air more than one game around, and they happened to get those in the last two weeks with how low their schedule was at the end, playing against Carlton and Brisbane. Both teams finished 16-6. and six. Melbourne finished ahead by 2.6% off the back of their just more than doubling up of the Brisbane Lions in round 23, while the Swans had to struggle with a late St. Kilda push. And we all know what Dan Hanabry said about that. But the round 12 meeting went the Swans' way by 12 points. That was Melbourne's second straight loss. Sam Reed had a big first quarter, taking advantage of a mismatch against Adam Tomlinson. Stephen May was out that game. He had been concussed the prior round. The D's are going to make some changes as we enter finals. James Jordan had foot surgery, but Christian Salem seems to be ready to go from his groin injury. There are also opportunities for Toby Bedford to return to that sub role that he's so used to. We've said before, he'd be in a full-time role, not just in the team's best 22, but probably best 18 on a lot of clubs. But when you're on a club this good, that's kind of the going rate. Most recently, it sounds like the Giants are pursuing Bedford. Thought I'd heard some rumblings about him and Essendon in past weeks, but GWS are picking up steam in the race form. Maybe he could kind of take over that sort of Bobby Hill role there. The Swans have been unchanged for a while, aside from medical subs, maybe, and no changes are expected in this one. Who knows if Josh P. Kennedy could make it back for one more game, and even if he can, who knows if there will be a real spot for him, other than as the 23rd. I'm really going to be focusing on Stephen May in this one. I've said a number of times this year that Stephen May and Jake Lever built so much off each other. We obviously couldn't see that in round 12, but it ought to be on full display on Friday night. As for the other side, we'll love to see how the Swans decide to deploy their back line. To which player will each of the McCartan brothers be going? I would think one of them's got to have Bailey French. I can understand that matchup maybe for Tom more than Patty because Tom is more of a ground player. Patty, though, maybe he would be assigned to Max Gunn when he's playing deep. I feel like there's big potential for Luke Jackson to have a big offensive game. Get a couple goals in this one. Maybe Dane Rampey goes to him. Either way, you're going to have to leave someone with less of a man-on-man matchup. And the focus on the talls could definitely leave some lanes open for Kazi Pickett. If there's one player that I want to see matching up against Kasi, I'm thinking Ryan Clark, who's done a decent tagging job multiple times this year, could have Pickett as an important matchup around half forward. It's going to be hard to be able to manage his matchups, whether or not he'll be going there, whether he'll be going to Clayton Oliver. But I think there has to be some extra man-on-man attention that's paid to Kazi. He provides more energy on the offensive side for Melbourne than anyone else even Max Gone when he's at his most accurate. Melbourne favored for this one by 11 and a half. I'd lean Swans here. I would put this game, you know, I guess I would put the D's as a slight favorite, maybe by a point and a half, two and a half. I think this line is way too big. I mean, you get a point just for having a crack. You get a point just for having a crack. A doubleheader on Saturday. It was initially shown to be Saturday, Sunday by the first schedule the AFL posted on Twitter. Nice job, folks. But it begins with the first qualifying final between Geelong and Collingwood at the G. Because Cardinia Park is undergoing renovations, you can't really make complaints about this one. However, 
I don't think other teams' fans can also complain about the home field advantage at Cardinia Park because those teams chose to not expand their own stadiums and play more games at the G. So hopefully we'll see Geelong actually host some finals against Victorian teams in future years. But this game at the G will begin at 4.35 p.m. local time. So the typical afternoon slot on Saturdays. For American viewers, it's going to be 2.35 a.m. Eastern on Saturday the 4th, 11.35 p.m. Pacific on Friday the 3rd. And this will be the third and final FS1 game of the round. The Cats were minor premiers at 18-4. Two games clear of the three-team pack, of which Collingwood are last. At 16-6, the Pies finished in fourth thanks to winning 11 of their last 12 games. The percentage gap between these teams... Just under 40. I would imagine, and I didn't bother consulting with Sir Swamp Thing on this, but I would assume you've never had a matchup where the teams have combined to win 25 of their last 26 games. Maybe not in the finals. Definitely not in an early round of finals. I mean, it could be a possibility in a grand final, but still, the odds of this are incredibly slim. you got two crazy hot teams we don't know if the finals break will be able to cool either of them down. One thing I will note, reading up recently on the possibility of, you know, future finals at Cardinia, seems like Cat's management is fine with going to the MCG, actually. I mean, from a revenue standpoint, especially getting 100000 there as opposed to forty, I particularly understand it. And it seems like they got this particular game time so that fans can make the trip up the highway and back with minimal trouble. I know a lot of the bitterness over not being able to host finals at Cardinia stems from a few years back, playing a final against Richmond at the G, where it became a very pro-Richmond crowd, and that is definitely something that could be a possibility here. I'm thinking maybe more like a 50-50 split is realistic, but... I see it 60-40 Collingwood. The issue that I'll state again and again is it's about rewarding the higher seed, and that's something that the Cats don't really get. Although, fortunately... They have been pretty good at the G this year. They won four of their five games there this year, the only loss being Easter Monday to Hawthorne. In fact, they beat Collingwood there in round three, a game where the Pies led by 37 in the third quarter. Geelong played maybe the worst single quarter of their season in the first and got bailed out by some inaccurate Collingwood kicking and then stormed back, took the lead midway through the fourth and went on to win 104 to 91. Obviously, both these teams are now a little different personnel-wise and just based off of how everyone perceives them and what they were at the time. The injury report for the Cats is overwhelmingly positive. Mitch Duncan, Cam Guthrie, Jeremy Cameron, Reese Stanley, none of them even listed on the injury report. So this is going to be pretty close to a full team. We would be able to reason that Jonathan Saglar is going to be one of the omissions to make way for Stanley. Probably not going to see a Salvarado Galea either, but what to do with that other spot kind of becomes the question. Some of that may depend on Jake Kolajashny's status. He's the only one with any health concerns. If he can get back from concussion protocol, pass all the necessary tests, he'd be one to consider going with as well. And the weird thing that I never thought I'd say, maybe Mark O'Connor would be the vulnerable one because this is a matchup where you probably aren't going to need his tagging abilities as much. I mean... It would be nice to be able to put someone on Jack Crisp, but I don't think that's a huge priority here. Whereas against a team like the Lions, you know, you have to put someone on Lockie Neal. 
Speaking of crisp, Collingwood's midfield will be getting even stronger as Taylor Adams will be returning after having missed the last few home and away games with what he called a unique groin injury. I don't even want to get into what that means, and I don't even want to begin speculating. Probably means Finn McRae gets the short end of the selection stick yet again. He was finally in once again for round 23, but it's going to be hard rationalizing keeping him in when you got to make way for Adams. And I'm surprised to be saying this, Nathan Kruger could be available. He dislocated his shoulder twice in as many games, the only games he played this season, but he played in the VFL, Collingwood's Reserves Elimination Final, and in that game, Carlton actually beat him, and pretty handily so. With what we talked about earlier with why each team can and can't win the flag, and you know all the discussion around this game across the footy media, we don't need to build any hype for it. The one area in which I'm going to be particularly interested in this game is the stoppages, the ruck work, because Darcy Cameron has regressed a bit the past few rounds. He and Mason Cox are going to be in a tough spot against Reese Stanley and Mark Blitzovs. I know Stanley is in. He isn't listed on the injury report at all, but I have a feeling Blitzovs is going to be is going to be tasked with more ruck work than he would be in the average game of this one. Another area of concern, I was talking with Donnie Hess of the 4th and Long podcast about this. Containment of Geelong's big targets is going to need to be even more important. I think there's a lot of potential for Tyson Stengel to get another substantial goal haul. I'm so glad he was named into the All-Australian team. I was really worried that he was going to be left out. But thankfully, I don't have to fly to Melbourne and riot about that. Cats are favored by 17 and a half, and in some ways, I think that's way too high. On the other hand, if you're setting it kind of at the midpoint of all the possible outcomes, most of which are either a very comfortable Geelong win or a very close Collingwood win, I guess it would be appropriate. We open the round with an elimination final, and we finish the round with an elimination final, the first elimination final. Fremantle hosting the Bulldogs at Optus Stadium. And if you're in for this one, it may be a long night because this one will not start until 6.10 p.m. on Saturday in Western Australia. That means 8.10 in Melbourne, 6.10 a.m. on the East Coast of the United States. And for those of us on the West Coast, 3.10 a.m. I really hope at that point I'm in a good mood. It'll have been a long day with work and then the cat's playing. So we'll see what everything looks like. I could be a fun watch. As fun as the game could be, you could have some fun seeing me just kind of try to fight through it to stay awake, much like I've done throughout this recording. Yeah, this has been fun. You've held it together, though. I'm not sure if the people are going to notice at all. I hope not. Actually, do I? I don't know how to feel about it. Anyway, this game will be on Fox Sports 2. Fremantle finishing fifth at 15-6-1. The beauty of Noah Cumberland playing on. Had Cumberland slotted that goal, they would have probably slipped to sixth. The Bulldogs at 12 and 10. They're in eighth. We will find out once again. I've talked about them playing well with their backs against the wall because it means more to them. We'll find out if these games mean something to them. He is riding this runaway train until it either somehow reaches the destination or derails and there's no ramp to save it. Hopefully it has a sail. A sail would help. Are you talking about a mainsail? Maybe. Hoist the mainsail! These teams met in round 21 at Marvel Stadium. 
Fremantle won that game by 17, led by as much as 29, and that doesn't really tell the story. They were ahead pretty comfortably just about the entire way. Just like with that game, Nat Fife will not be playing in this one because, as we mentioned in the second So You Didn't Crack the 8 episode, Fife has now injured his other hamstring. He's had recurring problems with those for a number of years now. And this newest injury means that he'll be out for likely three weeks. So unless the Dockers make the grand final, we likely won't see the dual Brownlow medalist again this season. However, the Dockers have gone fine without him. And a couple other important pieces look to be available. Rory Lobb and Griffin Logue seem to have healed from their shoulder and groin injuries, respectively. Matt Tabiter also apparently has been given the all-clear as well, though we're not sure if he's going to be playing in the AFL or if he's going to be doing some rehab work with Peel Thunder. Another tall target would be particularly valuable. Griffin Logue is decently sized, and of course Lobb's in there, but the fact that he's playing by no means indicates that his shoulder might be 100%. Nowhere near as many injuries and moving parts to deal with for the Bulldogs, but they do have one pretty significant out. Tom Liberatore ruled out with a hamstring injury. Libba, you can repeat Libba as many times as you want, BT. Libba! Libba! Libba, 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 Played all 22 home and away games this season. I wouldn't be shocked if he ends up picking up the club best embarrassed. I'm still surprised he wasn't in Australian consideration at all. Was the most clearance getter, especially with Marcus Bonapelli moving to full forward for a lot of the season. The question is, now who comes in for Libba? We'll note that Hayden Crozier and Jason Johansson both could be healthy, so they both factor into consideration there. Riley West's name has been thrown around. He had that, that one really good game. Late. West's biggest game came in round 15, their first meet against Hawthorne when he kicked 3-3. He played the next six games before being omitted last round. That round 21 game was one of the Dockers' best performances that didn't have as much to do with them imposing their will and their style. I remember coming out of that game pretty impressed that they played everyone else's game and did a pretty good job of it. I don't know if that's repeatable, but I think they've got a lot of room to work with in terms of how they can exploit various advantages to win this game. They have the upper hand at a lot of different spots. Obviously, the Bulldogs still have their big midfield group, but past that, I don't know who's going to be able to step up. And I'm looking forward to watching how those midfields line up who is Will Brody's direct matchup, Caleb Sarong, Andrew Brayshaw. I honestly think that Bailey Dale should be going to tag Caleb Sarong rather than Brayshaw. I said that in our Why They Can Win segment that we did on the fly, and I'm saying it again here. Sarong is the biggest enabler for the rest of that Frio midfield and for two-thirds as a whole. As for the dogs, a lot is going to rest on Bailey Smith in the middle, He hasn't had as many big statistical games since returning from his suspension. And last round, he was tagged pretty heavily by Finn McGinnis. So I'd expect somewhat of a bounce back performance from him. The question is, how big of a performance can it be? And then where is Sam Darcy going to factor into things? He was brought forward in Launceston and had two quick goals in about a minute that helped turn the game in the dog's favor in the second quarter. May we see Darcy get more forward time again? And if so, how do they make up for that in the back? Do we see Ukukamas getting back in 
and playing an important backline role again, as he's done a couple times this season. I think he'd make a really good medical sub because there are so many different ways you can slot him in. As long as he doesn't get another arms out 50. I still can't believe they called 50s for arms out earlier in the season. Dockers are favored by 12 and a half for this game, which I think is actually a pretty appropriate line. I'd maybe pushed a point or two higher, but I can be talked into either possibility here. The three goal range seems right. I wouldn't really think about going any lower in this one. I think between Liberatory being out and the home advantage in Western Australia, the Dockers have things going for them on paper going in and with what they did a month ago. They clearly have a blueprint for beating the dogs, and I expect them to do so again. That's going to just about do it for this, our 60th episode. Hopefully we got you even more excited for the finals than you already are. And this is the first time that we'll be watching finals that actually get played in Victoria that are able to have full crowds at every venue. So I'm looking forward to really embracing that atmosphere for the first time. We're about to get thrown into the fire. It's going to be chaotic. Hopefully, I'll remember this for the right reasons. I hope. Don't forget, you can find our instant reactions, including a lot of me yelling about the cats, on Twitter, at AmericansFuddy. Personally, I am at Castle Media. My boy, Brian Harambe, is on Instagram exclusively at CatNameBrian. I am on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. And yeah, I mean, we just love the footy. We care. Thanks, Basil. We are so glad that got voted the greatest AFL moment in that armchair experts poll. And rightfully so. Brett Kirk, we love you. And we're glad to have uh, shared our energy with all of you as we've recorded this and y'all have listened to it. We'll talk to you again early next week when we have our finals week one recap.